Hi, my name is Pamela Coons, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Oncology at Yale School of Medicine and Yale Cancer Center. I'm excited to announce ASCO's new open access journal, JCO Oncology Advances. As the inaugural editor-in-chief, I hope to support JCO Oncology Advances to become the premier platform to bridge the gap between accessible scientific research and clinical care. Stay tuned for more information, including new article types, at ascopubs.org forward slash JCO Oncology Advances. We look forward to seeing your submissions in spring of 2024. This JCO podcast provides observations and commentary on the JCO article Graft vs. Host Disease and Graft vs. Tumor Effects After Allogeneic Hematopoietic Cell Transplantation by Reiner Storbital. My name is Jane Appley and I'm the Chair of the Centre of Hematology at Imperial College London, UK, and my oncologic specialty is the hematologic malignancies. In this manuscript, Reiner Storb and a group of international colleagues report the outcome of almost 1,100 patients of median age 56 who receive sibling or unrelated donor blood-derived stem cells after a low-intensity conditioning regimen and who now have a median of five years follow-up. The commonest indications for transplant were acute leukemia for 30%, myeloma in 20%, and non-Hodgkin lymphoma in 17%. The initial transplant period appeared relatively problem-free, with 44% of the patients never having to be hospitalized, and the median days in hospital for the remainder being 10, with a range of 1 to 233. The five-year overall survival ranges from 25 to 60%, depending on the nature of the donor, sibling or volunteer unrelated, the presence of comorbidities, and the phase of the disease at the time of the transplant. Non-relapse mortality at five years is 24%, and the majority of the deaths are related to the occurrence of graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD. The relapse incidence reached 43.5% at five years and accounted for the death of 34.5% of the patients. Although the presence of chronic GVHD reduces the risk of disease recurrence, it does not confer an advantage in terms of survival or disease-free survival. It is important to reflect that most of these patients were deemed unsuitable for conventional myeloablative conditioning because of age. 75% were over the age of 50 and 35% older than 60 because of comorbidities and or prior transplants. And that this approach undoubtedly provides salvage therapy for a sizable proportion of individuals previously untreatable by transplantation. Allogeneic transplantation for hematologic malignancies achieves its curable intent through two mechanisms. First, by the tumor debulking action of the preferative conditioning regimens, and second, through the alloimmune activity of the engrafted donor immune cells. The identification of this powerful graft-versus-malignancy effect led logically to the introduction of transplant procedures in which the intensity of the chemo and or radiotherapy was reduced to avoid their immediate organ toxicity, and the eradication of the disease became dependent on the reconstitution of donor hematopoietic stem cells and their immune progeny. Initial reports of the short-term success of these approaches appeared in the late 1980s simultaneously from a number of transplant groups. The principle of achieving an allogeneic graft without having to induce irreversible host pancytopenia 
thereby minimizing drug toxicity but maintaining an alloimmune graph versus tumor effect is very attractive. And it's not surprising that there was a rapid global expansion of these procedures such that by 2011, they formed more than 38% of all allogeneic transplants performed in Europe. The precise terminology for transplants that involve less than myeloablative doses of chemoradiotherapy has been somewhat confusing and is often misinterpreted. It seems reasonable to consider any conditioning regimen that induces very prolonged, perhaps irreversible, pancytopenia as myeloablative. Regimens that do not induce neutropenia and which do not have to be supported by stem cell infusion as minimal intensity and those that cause prolonged but not irreversible pancytopenia and are more safely supported by stem cell infusion so as to avoid significant morbidity and mortality, as occupying a middle ground variably known as reduced intensity, non-myeloablative, or the somewhat trivializing mini-transplants or transplant light. Although the minimally intensive regimens are insufficiently intensive to induce prolonged pancytopenia, they must be immunoablative in that allogeneic cells almost invariably engraft. Attempts to classify varying combinations of drugs and low-dose radiotherapy regimens more precisely have suffered from a lack of knowledge as to exactly what might happen if the patient were not to be given additional stem cells, be they autologous or allogeneic. At first, these approaches were used for patients whose age, prior treatment, and or comorbidities rendered them unsuitable for standard myeloablative transplants. Most groups reported good engraftment and reduced transplant-related or non-relapse mortality compared to myeloablative regimens, but they also observed an increase in the relapse incidence. The latter was probably underestimated given the, given the relatively short follow-up of many of the studies. However, this initial proof of principle led to their subsequent use in younger age groups, relatively fit patients, and those in all phases of disease a practice that is not entirely evidence-based. It is, of course, impossible to perform randomized studies as patients suitable for reduced-intensity conditioning are unlikely to tolerate myeloablation, and those suitable for myeloablation might not be best served by using lower drug and radiation doses. The Seattle team have been long-term proponents of the ability to successfully perform allogeneic transplant with very low doses of chemoradiotherapy the minimally intensive conditioning regimens. Their approach has been to develop low-dose radiotherapy in a dog model and to identify the lowest radiation dose that will permit engraftment of the numbers of donor stem cells realistically attainable from a donor harvest. Storb and colleagues demonstrated that engraftment could occur with radiation doses as low as 2 gray, but only in the presence of intensive post-grafting immunosuppression with the dual agents cyclosporin and mycophenolate mofetil. Later, fludarabine was added to improve the rate of engraftment and the degree of donor T-cell chimerism. In this paper, we see the clinical results of translating a series of carefully constructed animal studies into human use, indeed mimicking the later realization that fludarabine improved engraftment rates with 20% receiving conditioning with two grays irradiation alone, but the great majority, 77%, being treated with two gray plus fludarabine, 30 milligrams per meter squared per day, on days minus four, minus three, and minus two. Using mycophenolate mofetil for a minimum of 28 days in sibling and 96 days in unrelated donor grafts, together with a calcineurin inhibitor, cyclosporin or tacrolimus for at least 180 days, 
sustained engraftment was achieved in 96% of the recipients. More specifically, chimerism studies performed on bone marrow and peripheral blood at 28, 84, and 365 days post-transplant showed high levels of donor engraftment with 100% donor cells present in total marrow cells, peripheral blood-derived neutrophils, and T-cells by the end of the first year. Donor T-cell chimerism levels were 84% and 90% at days 28 and 84 respectively, and 19 patients received donor lymphocyte infusions in an attempt to improve these rates. Because of the belief that the so-called cytokine storm caused by the conditioning regimen is in large part responsible for the induction of GVHD, there were early expectations that modified conditioning regimens would also result in reduced rates of GVHD. Unfortunately, this has not proved to be the case. In this series, the cumulative incidence of any GVHD was 75%, 71% in sibling and 79% in unrelated donor graphs. Acute GVHD of grades 2, 3, and 4 occurred in 37%, 9%, and 3% respectively, and was, as expected, lower in recipients of sibling rather than unrelated donor cells. The three-year probability of chronic GVHD was 50%. The impact of GVHD on the outcome of transplant remains profound. At five years, the probability of non-relapse mortality was 24% in the whole group, and most deaths were associated with the occurrence of GVHD, either acute GVHD with or without chronic GVHD or de novo chronic GVHD. Non-relapse mortality also increased with increasing comorbidities, being 15 and 25% in siblings with less than or three or more comorbidities respectively. The corresponding figures in recipients of unrelated donor graphs were 26% and 36%. This study is a high-level analysis of post-transplant outcome and no mention is made of the severity of the chronic GVHD nor of its impact on the quality of life in survivors, although we all appreciate that chronic GVHD can be a highly debilitating disease. The disadvantage of any modification of the preferative regimen is to reduce immediate toxicity is the risk of an increase in the relapse rate. The relapse incidence was high in this study at 43.5% overall and accounted for a probability of death from relapse of 34.5% at five years. The risk of relapse is clearly associated with the nature of the underlying disease and the disease phase at the time of the transplant. When patients were analyzed according to their estimated risk of relapse at transplant as low standard or high, the relapse incidence increased as expected. The diseases at lowest risk of relapse were the B-cell malignancies, especially non-Hodgkin lymphoma at any stage except for aggressive disease not in remission. The highest risk group included patients with very advanced malignancies not in remission. All 18 patients transplanted for acute lymphoblastic leukemia beyond first complete remission died of relapse. This has also been shown by other groups and suggests that very advanced phase aggressive disease is not salvageable by transplantation using reduced intensity conditioning. The median times to relapse in the patients at low standard and high risk of relapse at the time of transplant were 182, 174, and 107 days respectively. Relapse occurred soon after transplant with 70% occurring in the first year, and this presumably reflects a combination of the aggressive nature of the underlying disease and the ongoing use of intensive immunosuppression required to prevent graft rejection. 
In the past, it has been difficult to separate graft-versus malignancy from GVHD, and this was confirmed once more. Half of the relapses occurred in patients without GVHD. In the first two years, post-grafting relapse was more likely in patients without graft-versus-host disease. However, those with GVHD are more likely to die of transplant-related mortality and are thus no longer available to relapse, a long-standing statistical dilemma that the authors considered and analyzed by the method of competing risks. There was no obvious association of a graft-versus-malignancy effect with acute GVHD. Patients with chronic GVHD, either de novo or following a prior episode of acute GVHD, were less likely to relapse but more likely to die of transplant-related causes, resulting in no obvious benefit in overall or disease-free survival. In recipients of sibling transplant with low numbers of or absent comorbidities, chronic GVHD protected against relapse but resulted in death from non-relapse mortality. Overall, in the unrelated donor group, chronic GVHD protected against relapse. However, those individuals with fewer than three comorbidities and who received unrelated donor grafts received no protection from relapse from either acute or chronic GVHD. Because relapse usually occurred early and was not prevented by the occurrence of acute GVHD, the authors concluded that the prevention of acute GVHD would not significantly impact on outcome. Instead, they favored consideration of ongoing chemo or immunotherapy immediately after the transplant until the alloimmune effect can become firmly established. The overall survival at five years ranged from 25 to 60%. Patients were analyzed according to their risk group for relapse, i.e. low, standard, and high, and the numbers of comorbidities, i.e. up to two or more than two. The best results were seen in patients with low numbers of comorbidities and considered at low risk of relapse, with an overall survival of 60%, falling to 42% of additional comorbidities were present. In contrast, patients at high risk of relapse and with more than two comorbidities had an overall survival of 25%, rising to 30% if there were fewer concurrent medical problems. Patients at an intermediate or standard risk of relapse had overall survivals of 50% with up to two comorbidities and 35% if more were present. In recent years, other groups have also reported similar outcomes from reduced-intensity transplants, suggesting that the precise degree of reduction in intensity of chemoradiotherapy might not be important. These reports do not lend themselves to direct comparison, as the reason for choosing a reduced intensity as opposed to a myelopalative procedure in individual patients is rarely discussed. Interestingly, Storb and colleagues provide the numbers of patients transplanted in three successive four-year time periods, namely 1997 to 1999, 2000 to 2004, and 2004 to 2009, and reported fewer transplants in the most recent period compared to 2000 to 2004. This could reflect better patient selection in that those at high risk of failure receive alternative therapy or something as simple as referral rates as less experienced centers often believe that these transplants are more straightforward than myeloablative procedures and begin to do them themselves. Irrespective of the precise nature of the conditioning regimen, it seems that non-myeloablative procedures are feasible associated with an acceptable non-relapsed mortality in a group of patients not traditionally considered suitable for allografting and can result in durable remissions. Graft versus host disease and early relapse remain obstacles to greater success and continue to present challenges to all in the transplant community. This concludes this JCO podcast. 
Thank you for listening. For more original research, editorials, and review articles, please visit us online at jco.org. This production is copyrighted to the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Thank you for listening.